This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, pastor at Grace Church. If you have your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. Take out your devices, whatever you access Scripture to, or look off at a neighbor's Bible. And look in the book of John, this is the fourth book in the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, we welcome you here. We are so glad that you're here. Um, we, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. We're preaching a series through John, and we're in the fourth book of the New Testament, and we're in the 15th chapter of that book. I don't know how you approach a day like today. It's a sobering day. I mean, there's a lot of excitement happening today. I mean, like, football is kicking off today, but it's... It's a 10-year anniversary of something extremely tragic in our country that affects all of us. I mean, some of you might not have been born. Some of you might have been children uh, when the towers fell 10 years ago. But if you're like me, you remember exactly what happened. It's events like that that lead men like Richard Dawkins to, to um, create all kinds of books about the new atheism and to create quite a following with books like God is Not Great, how religion poisons everything. And you can come into a meeting like this and you can say, you know what, religion poisons everything. Look what happened in New York 10 years ago. Look what happens around the country, not just by Islam or radical Islam, but by people who, na- who claim the name of Jesus and do horrible things and horrible atrocities. Look what happens around the world because of the name of religion. Look at how it poisons everything in our society. Look at how it poisons our family and our lives. The problem is we can't get away from the poison. We have this desire in us to somehow reach up and out to God, to come, come into a relationship with God or, or get something from God, and that's what so often religion promises, and we're inundated with religion. Religion is everywhere around us. The religion of being an American, of waving the flag and of saying, I belong to America, and safety is in America, especially 10 years after such an act of, of terrorism. People are looking to safety in government and political powers, And political people, and we don't lack people to stand up and say, trust in me and I can protect you and I can keep you safe and I can be your savior. I can be your functional savior in your life. Please vote for me and send your money my direction. I mean, the religion of earth and the promises of living green, of the heaven that we can recreate earth in our own ability and our own power. I'm not saying that we shouldn't steward the resources God's given to us. But there's a religion out there, the religion of body, making sure that you've got the best body or the, the body that is most at ease, or at least a body better than yours or something like that in our culture, the, the religion of clothing, the religion of sports. Some people will be going to temples today to worship that religion all over our land. And those are really soft religions, but all those religions have promises and all those religions have a heaven. You pursue the promises and the conditions of that religion and you get the heaven that that religion promises. And there are promises in every religion, including Mormonism, including Jehovah's Witnesses, including Baha'i religion, including unity churches and this amalgam kind of spirituality that exists in our world where everybody's spiritual. Ask 78 million millennials today if they're spiritual and every single one of them will say that they are. You start getting into exclusive claims of what makes them spiritual, as in particularly about Christianity. 
And then you get a very narrow number of the largest generation in America right now. There's spirituality everywhere. And Islam is, is no different. Many people today will hate Islam, but Islam has promises and it has a heaven. And people just like you and me attach themselves to promises in radical forms and attach themselves to a heaven because they were obeying its religion. This week I read just a, the chilling account. I don't know if you've ever read this before, but I remember 10 years ago when I first heard it. It's entitled The Last Night, and it's the resolutions that the terrorists read to themselves before they hijacked the planes that created so much tragedy and changed America. I'm not going to read all of them. Here's a few of them. It's called The Last Night. It starts off like this. Number one, make an oath to die and renew your intentions. Read Al-Tabah and Anfal, traditional war chapters from the Quran, and reflect on their meanings. And get this, remember all of the things that God has promised for the martyrs. In other words, attach yourself to the promises of the heaven that it offers. And then there's this sense in which, and this is true of every religion, you have the ability within yourself to tame your soul. They go on to say, remind your soul to listen and obey all the divine orders and remember that you will face decisive situations that might prevent you from 100% obedience. But tame your soul. Purify it. Convince it. Make it understand and incite it. Religion offers a promise. You can do this. You can tame the soul. You've got the ability within you to achieve the heaven that it offers. And every religion has its heaven. It doesn't matter if it's 70 eternal virgins. It it could be less years in hell to work off the guilt of your sin in your life. A form of purgatory. Walking the balanced beam over hell on your way to heaven. At least it's not the pit. Or maybe it's your own universe. Many religions today offer your own universe. You can become a god. You become deity itself. You don't need God. You can even distance yourself from God because you can become your very own god and have your own celestial universe. Or let's pick on Christians. Streets of gold. Mansions sometimes of isolation from others. (laughs) So I I can just get away from people and have my streets of gold. It doesn't really matter if Christ is there or not, so long as I get that. Maybe I can golf all day and have no guilt in my life, and maybe I can finally achieve a state of wealth that I've always wanted for my life or my family. And Religion says man is able to tame the soul and reach up to God and achieve a heaven. And heaven is pictured in lots of different ways in religion. And Christianity offers something very, very, very different. And if you're here today and you've never heard the difference, Christianity offers a relationship with God based on faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. 
Not in which we become gods, but in which God himself spiritually comes to dwell in us. It's grace. Where religion offers a striving after God, Christianity offers God coming down to us. Where religion offers up conjured up imaginations of what heaven is, and in Christianity we believe in an actual heaven, but so much more. For us, heaven came down to earth in the form of a person named Jesus. And you can have a relationship with this person by faith alone. And he offers himself to you today. It's called grace. What we named our church after. Grace. Because grace is something that comes down to us. It's not something that we work after and achieve on our own, or achieve in our own ability. And this relationship with God will cost you everything. Because it is so valuable. The heaven that Christianity offers is an amazing relationship with the God of the universe, the God who made you, the God who knows you, the God who created you, the God God who has never stopped pursuing you in love to unite himself to you by faith. If you've never done that, it's offered to you today, and many of us have done that. And it costly, it costs you everything. And, And this... This message isn't, isn't a popular message. You won't really hear this in a lot of, sadly, in a lot of churches. You really won't hear the costliness of the relationship that God offers to us in grace. But Jesus was always right out in front of the cost of following him. And he said, take up your cross and follow me. Before he even hung on the cross, he said, there's going to be a cross involved in the relationship, this side of eternity. And you need to take up your cross and you need to follow me. And today we're looking at John chapter 15, specifically 18 through 16, verse 4. But I want to start two verses ahead just to give us a little bit of the context of what Jesus has just told the disciples and what we looked at last week and then pray and get started. Look at verse 16 in chapter 15. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I have told them to you. 
Heavenly Father, set us free from religion. Set us free from the lies and the the promises of false heavens. Wrong ideas about what heaven is. Wrong ideas about what eternal life means. Wrong ideas about what it means to follow a king. Wrong ideas about what it means to follow a king who came down out of heaven to us to walk in our skin and to suffer and to die on the cross and to then go to glory. Help us, we ask, Father. We need your help. I need your help, Lord. So inadequate. Give us your mercy on this day. Give us your mercy. Pour your mercy out upon us. Pour your grace out upon us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pretty simple outline today. The promise of opposition in verse 18 through 25, and then the promise of victory. The promise of opposition, the promise of victory. In verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus assumes something about the world in which he's telling his disciples to go pursue. Jesus came to redeem a world. He came to rescue a world that's desperately in need of salvation. And he assumes something about this world because he's just called his disciples to go into the world to bear fruit for God. And something's going to happen whenever they do this. They're going to experience opposition. And they're going to be tempted whenever they experience opposition, like you and I are tempted all the time, to believe it's, it's about us. It's the opposition is all about me, and we're tempted to put us above Jesus, and Jesus says, don't do that. He says, know that when the world hates you, it's hated me before it hated you. Me before you. It's, it's, this is comforting to us. We, we can try to get the glory in the, in the opposition, even. And Jesus says, no, you're not even going to get the glory there. Uh, I get the glory even in the opposition against you as you go into the world. Now, notice in verse 16, just a little bit above it, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go. And, and it's not all about opposition. There is a war. There is opposition, but it's not just opposition. So I don't hear that in this message. There's a context to his teaching here. It's primarily fruit-bearing work that he's sending them out to. I chose you, I appointed you, that you should go and... Go and what? Go and bear fruit. Bearing fruit is multiplying. Multiply the life that I've given to you. Multiply the truth through the gospel out into the world and see the fruit that comes up as you go as appointed people, as chosen people. Go and bear fruit and your fruit is going to abide forever. That's, that's true of all of us. No matter where we're planting the seeds of the gospel, whether at work or home or anywhere, That's going to abide forever and something amazing happens when we're bearing fruit for God and being obedient to going. Our communion with the Father increases. Suddenly we have requests for God and of God that we didn't have before so that whatever you ask the Father on my name, he may give it to you. And our love for one another increases. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So Jesus is passionate that we go out and we bear fruit, that we go into the world. Every single one of us. Nobody's off the hook. No, nobody. 
If you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus has said, go and bear fruit for God and your fruit's going to abide forever. Your communion with the Father is going to increase and your love for others is going to increase and opposition is going to increase too. By the way, that's going to get ramped up too. But just don't forget the joy and don't forget the fruit and don't forget the life and everything else that Jesus has just promised is going to happen along with the fact that by the way, the world is going to hate you. He doesn't just kind of slip it in sideways. He says the world is going to hate you. One of the ways that we know that we're going, one of the ways that we know that we're bearing fruit for God is that when we experience opposition, we recognize, oh, this is part of the discipleship plan. Opposition is part of the call to follow Christ. He said in another place in the Gospels, all the world is supposed to hate you as you follow me. The world is going to hate you. Here's why. The world has hated the Son of God. The world has hated Jesus. It's not all about you. Sometimes we get so worked up. I just, you know, I know why I'm receiving the opposition or the anxiety. I just didn't say it the right way. I didn't do the right thing. I came on too strong. Yeah, maybe. You need to work on that. I need to work on that. Sure, there's there's things that we can do a little bit better in spreading the gospel. But maybe it's just be good old fashioned. The world has hated Jesus. And there's an opposition in sharing and spreading the gospel that verse 18 says. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Ding, 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 ding. If you're overly loved by the world and experiencing no opposition, maybe it's because you just look too much like the world. If you were of the world, Jesus says, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the the world hates you. Now notice his words. You're not of this world. I chose you out of the world. You're not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, at some level and in some way, you're going to experience the opposition from the world because you're from another world now. Jesus says, I pulled you out of one context and I placed you into another context. Now you're a citizen of heaven. Now, because of faith alone, You are made righteous and clean and pure. You have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You have the grace that not only pardons, but empowers you. You have a whole nother destiny that this world does not have. And so, of course, you have a whole different set of values, whole new set of loves, whole new set of affections, whole new set of hates. That's how you know that you're regenerated. You have a whole new set of of different affections for God that didn't exist before. Suddenly you feel guilty about things that you never felt guilty about. Suddenly you hate certain aspects of the world that used to be appealing to you. Well, Jesus calls you out of the world, not by transporting you physically from the planet Earth into heaven, but by putting heaven's desires in you, by coming and living inside of us and giving us new faith and affections for God. And that's how the kingdom advances through the gospel. And when this happens, Jesus says, note this, I'm keeping you from the world in this. And if you were of the world, the world would love you, but you've got a different set of values working in you, new motions of God alive in you because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's why the world is going to hate you. It's important that we see that Jesus does not 
catapult us or eject us out of the culture or out of the world. For his pleasure and for his glory, he prays in John 17, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. He actually says, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. We've got to live with that tension. Jesus, while praying that we are kept from the evil one, also prays that we don't hit the eject button. He actually says, Father, I ask that you don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. I'm putting my values and my spirit in them. They're going to have a whole new set of loves and affections that are going to be contrary to the world. But with that whole new set of contrary affections, they're going to be in the world, fully engaged in the mission, just like I was fully engaged in the mission. Jesus says to his father, keep them in and keep them from at the same time. And we just get this wrong so often as Christians. Either we're we're over contextualizing and we're just becoming putty in the world's hands or we're putting the walls up around us to try to keep us out and away from culture and away from people and away from the world that we're called to go and bring the gospel to and seek to save by the power of God. So the world hates Jesus. We belong to Jesus. That's why we're experiencing opposition. Look at verse 20. We're not better than Jesus. He says, I lost my spot. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. He has to remind his disciples of this. A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Disciples, notice I'm the master and you're the servant and you're not better than me. And if we were really honest, we would admit that sometimes we just think we're better than Jesus. I don't think I should have to go and befriend sinners. I don't think I should have to eat with tax collectors and sinners and the riffraff of society. I don't think I should have to go out of my way, risk the reputation of friends to go on a cross-cultural trip to engage a person at a lot of risk to my reputation who is far from God and tell them truth. I don't think I should ever have to speak up against lawlessness on the job or in my family or among my friends or in, even in the church. Or I should never have to speak up against legalism. By the way, that's how our hearts are always going one way or the other. It, it's, it's risky to follow Jesus in this way and to not think that we're better or, or we shouldn't experience any suffering like Jesus suffered whenever he did this. We're not, I don't want to have to touch lepers. I don't want to have to heal the sick or the oppressed. I don't want to have to go to the nations. I, I want to build a, you know, as, as comfortable a situation for my, myself as possible and put up as much walls as I can between me and the world. And, and Jesus says, Father, don't take them out of the world. Send them into the world. Send them, send them into the world with my spirit. 
burning in them, with my truth over them, but send them into the world to spread the gospel and to advance the kingdom of God. Look at verse 21. He says, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. That doesn't mean that they're, um, they're all, people are off the hook who have never heard the gospel. Romans 1 makes that very plain. But to the degree of revelation is the degree of responsibility. And these people have seen a lot of revelation of Jesus Christ, that he is one with the Father. His miracles proved his deity. His, his words spoke of his saving power and they rejected it and rejected it and rejected it and you could be here today and you could be rejecting it and rejecting it and rejecting it and you're just choosing not to follow jesus and you you've been offered lots of revelation and so you are without excuse this word tells you right now you're without excuse if that's you if he says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, of that particular sin of revelation. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. That's the issue right there. Jesus says people don't come to, people don't lack a, a faith in God because they haven't seen enough of God. It's, it's deep down they want to be their own God and they hate his authority and they hate who he is. And that's what Jesus says. The issue is with the heart. It's not just the external behavior. They've hated me in their hearts. And because they've hated me, note this, they hate my father. So Jesus is God. Jesus is saying, I'm one with the father. You, you don't have a relationship with me. You don't surrender your life to me. You don't have a relationship with God. You don't have a relationship with the Father. That cuts right at the heart of all the nonsense spirituality that's out there today. That says, I can have a spiritual relationship with God because I'm a spiritual person, but I don't have to hold to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ alone. And Jesus says, no. Deep in your hearts, you, you don't want me because of my authority and my power and my lordship over your life. The, the commands that, I'll, that, I, that I give to you. And deep down, you hate me. In verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So as you're spreading the gospel to friends, family, coworkers, just everywhere that the Lord sends you, you, you you're going to come up against arguments with family members. You're going to experience at least the fear, maybe the actuality of ridicule at work, maybe the loss of a job or a promotion. Um. Maybe you're physically hurt because God calls you to the mission field or a family member is. Maybe you get sick. You know, on, on the call of God in your life, you experience a sickness or a significant loss of money or maybe just constant pressure and temptation. Jesus, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. This is how I live my life and this is how I want you to live as you follow me. And you might feel today, well, all this talk about being hated by the world, all this talk about oppression that Jesus is, say, is saying will come to every disciple. I don't get that. I don't feel very oppressed at all. I mean, what, are you, what are you saying? I mean, it, what about me? If I don't feel very oppressed, I mean, I, I resonate with you if you're feeling that way today. I think Scripture gives us a few options on this. It could be that we're experiencing either individually, corporately, in the world today, unusual favor from God. 
unusual because it's not the testimony of Scripture. I mean, Paul tells Timothy, uh, we must all suffer, you know, in the call of Christ. All Christians will suffer to some degree. So it could be an unusual favor, like in Acts 2.47. I mean, Pentecost comes, the Spirit of God falls on the church. Jesus baptizes the church with his power. That's the promise of the gospel. And an unusual favor happens. As they start to preach the gospel, many are saved. And in 2.47, they're praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So, I mean, it could just be this unusual fruit-bearing season of your life. It's summertime for you. Maybe it's summertime for our culture. If that's true, if that's true, we should leverage summertime. We should be harvesting as much as we possibly can because in summer, we know what? Winter's coming. That's, that happened in Acts as well. They hit summertime in two and three, and then they hit wintertime in chapter four. The priests and the captain get word of this gospel. They get greatly annoyed about the proclamation of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead, and then oppression comes. So it could just be an unusual favor that you're experiencing individually in your life. Great. Great. Maybe you're, maybe you're following Jesus as he's calling you to. You're spreading the gospel everywhere into every corner of your life that he's called you to, and you're just experiencing unusual blessing. That could maybe be a way over here. On this other side, maybe there's just a, a trap of syncretism in your life. In other words, you're, you're kind of falling into the trap of kind of looking too much like the world because you are not of the world. Um, it, actually, maybe verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Maybe you just look too much like the world. You're loving the world and the things of the world that were warned about in First John. And so you're becoming Plato in its hands. You ever play with Plato? My kids love Plato, and you just stick Plato into a little thing that fashions and forms that you can create anything based on what that little contraption is, because it's so soft and squishy and gooey, and you could be that way as a Christian. You should be soft and gooey, and the world is that clamp. It's not soft or gooey. It's going to stamp you with its imprint if you just let yourself just be gooey and a, a love globular in the culture, and then it's just going to press its imprint on you, and then you just become one with the world. And, and of course you're not going to experience any opposition. You think the devil is, is overly concerned? You're boxed out. I mean, that's this no, you're no threat to his kingdom. That's why we're called not to love the world or the things in the world. Maybe your, your syncretism is such that you're just not even a believer. You do love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And you've not crossed the line of faith and trusting Jesus and saying, he's my Lord, not this culture. He's the one that I value more than the world or friends or popularity or anything else like that. So it could be a form of syncretism that's kind of forming in our lives. And here's the other one. And not some secret sin underneath the sin underneath the sin. It could just be good old-fashioned, plain vanilla, garden variety disobedience. It could just be that. It could just be a disobedience in regards to love. Jesus loved the city, and I'm choosing not to love my city. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because of the people there that had rejected God. And I'm choosing to resist the spirit in me that wants to weep with God over the city that he's called me to.
could be an, a disbelief and a disobedience in, in regarding speaking the truth in love where there are lies abounding, wherever that is, work, family, relationships. People need to hear truth, and, and there's a risk involved in speaking that truth. And, and, and God's saying, I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the words. I'm going to give you the ability. Speak up. Speak up. And you could just lack the courage to say, I'm not going to take a risk. I'm not going to take that risk. That relationship is too valuable to me, or that promotion is too valuable to me, or my ease is too valuable to me. I don't want to risk going across the street and getting to know my neighbor. One guy I read this week put it this way. Mission, sooner or later, leads into passion. And by that, he meant suffering. Mission, sooner or later, leads into passion. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. He goes on to say, every form of mission leads to some form of cross. Every form of mission, whatever that is, leads to some form of opposition or cross in your life. And that's why Jesus says, to follow me is going to be taking up a cross and following me. So that's the promise. Opposition. Here's the other promise. Victory. Victory. Don't you just love verse 26? But. I mean, just all this opposition. And you don't have to look far into the world to see, yes, there is a lot of opposition against truth that sets free against the person of truth, Jesus Christ. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, and Jesus is all about speaking about the helper, the helper in verse, verse chapter 14, the helper in chapter 16, the helper, the helper, the helper. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus says, I'm going to give you victory against the temptations and pressure and opposition of the world by giving you a helper. Translation, we need help. We need help. Isn't that, great, isn't that a great word for the Spirit? I mean, we can have so many different words, and there are different words for the Spirit in, in Scripture. But I love that Jesus says He's the helper. Because you and I need help. And if you don't think that you need help, you need help. You need help to see that you need help. We are desperate and totally powerless on our own. You think we can stand up against this kind of opposition? Jesus is not expecting you to stand up against this opposition on your own. That's why verse 26 exists. He says all of these things to let you, to, so that we're finally backed up against a corner and we're saying, help, 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 help. Jesus, are you going to help? And then he says in verse 26, but when the helper comes, and that's when the sigh of relief comes. Yes, thank you. We can't bear fruit on our own. We can't have joy on our own. We can't have life on our own. All of this is given because the helper is going to come to us Personally, just walk through the prepositions in verse 26. Walk through them. Walk through them. Don't run past them. Every single word is important. Whom, not it. Not a phantom, not a fog, not an apparition, not something that just kind of comes and goes and floats around. Whom, he, person, third person of the Trinity. We serve a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. And this person, the third person of the Trinity, will come to indwell you. That was what we looked at last week. The Spirit of God will come to indwell you. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
It's not just that God is on the outside of us speaking truth over us. That's true. But in the gospel, God comes to indwell us. Deity comes to live inside of us. It doesn't mean that we become a God. But it does mean that God comes to indwell spiritually with us. And this God is a person, not a phantom, not an it, but a whom. When the helper comes, this person, I whom I will send. Jesus is saying, I'm going to send. This is a promise of baptizing the church in power that he does in Acts chapter 2. So if you just go forward to the history of the church, how, how we get this new covenant power is because Jesus is going to send it. This, he wants his disciples to be helped. And he's going to play a part in sending the helper to us. He's going to baptize the church from the Father. I will send him to you from the Father. Note to you. To you. Yes, that's, that's plural in this passage. But every plural form of you find its significant imprint on individuals to me. Can you say that today? To me. He will send the helper to me. Why? Because he knows I need help. He knows I need power. He knows I can't do it on my own. He knows I can't live the Christian life on my own. He knows I won't have any joy on my own. He knows I'm not going to be bold on my own. But he's going to send the Spirit, the helper, to me from the Father. The Father's not distant in this relationship. It's the Spirit of the Father as well. The Spirit of the Father will come to indwell us and and unite us to our Father. Then we're sons and daughters in this new covenant, this new family relationship as the people of God. He calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth, not the Spirit of error, not the Spirit of confusion, not the Spirit of despair, Not the spirit that makes you gravitate only on your sin and sends you into darkness and despair and discouragement. Test that spirit because this spirit leads you to truth. This spirit leads you to Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Savior, the graceful one, the one who redeems, the one who saves, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness. Notice the two things that the spirit will do. He will bear witness about me. That's the first thing that the Spirit does. It's primary activity of the Holy Spirit is that he bears witness about Jesus Christ. This is exactly what was said just a chapter before when he talked about the Helper. Jesus says, when the Helper comes, the Spirit of truth, same language there, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you a new covenant promise, and will be in you. This is throughout the New Testament. The apostles spoke of this kind of new covenant reality everywhere and connected it to the resurrection of Jesus. Paul will say in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, entered into our context from one world into another world out of love for us, putting himself under the law, taking on our our humanity, entering into a time in history, into a culture, just like we're called to enter into our culture, to redeem those and to give us an adoption as sons. And because you are sons, 
God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's the spirit of God indwelling us. He's called the helper later on in chapter 14, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, a teacher. His activity will be one primarily of the mind, teaching us all things, bringing to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And this is what he does. He tells us about the glory of Jesus again and again. In the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our despair, Jesus is better. Jesus is for you. Jesus is hope. Jesus is rescue. Call upon Jesus. Power to to call out and say, Abba, Father. And that power leads us into the second thing, verse 27. We will bear witness about Jesus. He says, and you also. And you also. The Spirit will come and bear witness about me. And then the Spirit's going to put us on mission. I mean, it's almost, it's in the same breath. You are going to be comforted. You are going to be encouraged. You are going to be given boldness. And then you're going to testify about me. He will bear witness about me. And then you're going to bear witness about me because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus doesn't say, work up the nerve, drink a lot of Red Bull, and you're going to bear witness about me. He says, I'm going to send the Spirit, and I'm going to make you bold. I'm going to make you strong. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you help. Do you remember the the story of Peter? There's this, this person that followed Jesus, and he promised, Jesus, I'll never deny you. No matter what opposition comes against me, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, tonight, you're going to deny me three times to this guy. And he did. He forgot that Jesus said that to him, and Jesus is persecuted, and he thinks he's going to be persecuted, and he denies him three times. And then he remembers the words of Jesus, and he goes into a tailspin of discouragement and despair. And he just runs away into the outer darkness, because he is such a disappointment to God. Have you ever shared that story? You promised God you would never fail him like that. You promised you'd never do it. You'd never watch it. You'd never say it. And you did it. In the midst of your discouragement, in the midst of your darkness, you ran far from God. Well, that's what Peter did. He ran away from God. And Jesus, after his resurrection, goes to Peter. And he restores the relationship. And he gives hope to Peter. And he reminds Peter of his promises. He reminds him of the relationship that he is never going to give up on Peter. And then in Acts chapter 2, when he baptizes the church, this scared and frightened person suddenly got help. He got help. This frightened person that couldn't stand up to like a 10-year-old girl at a campfire stands up to multitudes of people and says, Jesus was raised and we are all witnesses being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this Spirit that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And Jesus brings to His remembrance Psalms from David. And He quotes from memory 
The Psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Suddenly, Peter got help. And that's God's will for us is just to be helped through Jesus by his Holy Spirit so that we don't, we don't fear temptation or fear trial that comes upon us. And let's close with this last section, and we're done. I wish I could end it there, but he, Jesus goes back to really challenging words. Look at verse 1. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. This is the, this is the way we're not going to fall away, the words of Jesus. I've said these things so that you won't fall away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. Happens all the time. Happened 10 years ago. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. The, the, the people who, who flew the planes into the towers didn't do it because they didn't believe in God. They did it because they believed in God. They just had a false belief in God. They didn't believe in the one true God, the real God, the creator of the universe God. And they did not know the Father. What do we do with that? What do we do with the reality that 171,000 Christians worldwide are martyred for their faith per year? It's the best statistic I could find on that. I think we have hope. There's another person in the Bible named Saul who did this kind of thing in service to God. And while Saul was still breathing threats of murder against the disciples, he got help. while he is on his way to persecute and murder believers, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And this light had a voice and a word. And he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul suddenly has an insightful word and says, Who are you, Lord? Where did that come from? Who are you, Lord? And this Lord says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. If you're not following Jesus, you're persecuting him. You're on the other side of opposition. And you're like our friend Saul. And you're like me. And you're like the other believers in here who found Jesus. And this Saul threw himself on the mission of God in the same chapter that Christ found him. And even though he was free, free from all, he'll later say, he made himself a servant to all that he might win as many people as possible to this grace, to this person, to this redeemer, to this savior. He says, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. What would happen if you took that mantra on in your life? By all means possible, I want people to know about grace and not false religions. Well, how did that happen for Paul? It's because the voice, the person, Jesus, made an oath to die. And he renewed his intentions. And he gave 100% obedience. And he tamed his soul. He convinced it. He made it understand. He incited it. The only one who could ever live a perfect life 
and then took responsibility for our sin and our shame and our wickedness did it and did it all the way to a tree on Calvary and rose from the dead victoriously to pour his life and to give his life not in hatred but in love not for death but for life to give us life he's given you life you've been listening to a message from Grace Church for more information visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org 